Hello and welcome to EMS in the Motor City. On this Demcast, you'll hear from amazing EMS physicians and some of the best EMS providers from in and around the city that moves the world. So grab a seat, buckle in, and away we go. Welcome back to Demcast Studios. We are going to talk about the crashing patient. Uh, we have new protocol that we're adopting. We want to spend some time educating about why this is important, and we'll dive right into a case in just a couple of minutes. I just want to introduce who's in the studio today as we have frequent changes. We have uh, Dr. Matt Ball. Howdy. Mr. Damon Gorlick. Hello. Our newly graduated fellow, Dr. Ryan Reese. Hi there. Our fearless leader and medical director, Dr. Rob Dunn. How's it going? And just to say that, uh, you know, it's great that, that Ryan is still willing to hang out with us in, in Demka and come down from Genesee County, the, the exalted world of Genesee County. So that's awesome. And just to say, even though you were talking about this being a new protocol, it really just puts a lot of things together that everyone could be doing right now, right? Very true. There's a lot of pieces of information here that will apply broadly across treating patients um, in, in any situation. And uh, as usual, I'm Dr. Aaron Brennan, and I am at Detroit Receiving and one of the, the uh, Demka medical directors. We learn best through cases, and I think it hits home uh, when we kind of think about what we do in our actual real-life world. So Damon... Can you walk us through one of a uh, fairly recent case we had within Demka of a, a crashing patient before we dive into this protocol? My pleasure. Uh, the, the case in point that we are here to discuss is a, a, a run that uh, the crew is dispatched to for a patient uh, post-seizure. And when they arrived, the, the patient was breathing fairly rapidly. Uh, I think I believe about 40, minute, uh, 40 times per minute, uh, shallow, and had a good waveform and eventually did crash because the patient eventually did birdie down. Uh, some of the things that looking at these cases and similar esque ones is what can we do to anticipate the patient crashing and what are some interventions that we can possibly have in place beforehand when the patient does crash or even hopefully prevent the patient crashing that when someone is breathing that rapidly and shallow Yes, the, the crew did. What, what we we're all trained to do is put on a non-rebreather, especially because their SpO2 was at 30%. But sometimes we need to take a step back and really think of why is their SpO2 at 30%? Is it because they're not really getting oxygen in and more supplement oxygen will help it? Or is it they're not getting oxygen in, in this case, because the patient isn't breathing adequately? And is a non-rebreather really going to fix that? Or would it be better to really assist them with their ventilations and make sure that you can really inflate the lungs, let good air exchange and all that happen to eventually hopefully prevent them from going pretty down. But even if they, you're anticipating that, realizing you know everyone in some kind of respiratory arrest is going to go in respiratory distress and eventually go into cardiac arrest, let's get the pads on the patient in, in case that does happen. And when they... And then you can watch their pulse, and that way then, too, you can start pacing them, that we can do some interventions to prevent them from going to cardiac arrest. So, Ryan, what, do you th what, what kind of things are, you know, what does a crashing patient mean to you? I mean, a crashing patient to me is somebody who uh, 
just does not look good, right? They, they, they're in this case, they are breathing uh, rapidly, shallow. They might be altered, diaphoretic. Um, they, they just look like somebody who is going to code. Right. So I think that that idea that we kind of think of the crashing patient as someone who's at risk of respiratory arrest and then cardiac arrest or primary cardiac arrest is the real concept here is this is someone we want to prevent doing this. You people often hear, you know, a witness cardiac arrest is great. And it's great if you have a cardiac arrest in front of EMS providers. But if the reason you had a cardiac arrest in front of those EMS providers is because you've been deteriorating for the last, you know, hours to days, maybe you're practically calling 911 with your last breath, unless we're very good at recognizing that and intervening quickly, that's a patient that's at high risk of death. The best cardiac arrest is the one that we keep from happening. Absolutely. And if we think of the, you know, the simple cardiac arrests that people, that person that's awake and alert and fine and then just goes into V-fib, that's a great witness cardiac arrest. I mean, it's never great to be in cardiac arrest, but that's someone who quick defibrillation and and maybe they wake up saying ow. But the patients that we're talking about today, these crashing patients like the patient Damon was giving a quick narrative on are patients that are have been deteriorating and are going on to deteriorate right in front of you and there's some opportunities to intervene. So the, the protocol surrounding this that uh, we'll be implementing in Demca is uh, applies to any patient in whom cardiac or respiratory arrest appears imminent. I know that's kind of a vague definition, but these are patients who we've mentioned already just kind of look sick, look ill, um, people who need a lot of aggressive intervention to keep them from deteriorating further into cardiac arrest. Let's note that this protocol does not include trauma patients. If somebody has like an exsanguinating hemorrhaging trauma patient, this is not the one that we're expecting you to implement these these interventions on. Those people really do need to get the hospital to the hospital as quickly as possible and get hemorrhage under control, whether by tourniquet or direct pressure or whatever other means that we typically utilize. The Protocol here has critical actions that need to be taken at different kind of timestamps in your management of a patient. They follow what we would generally kind of assume as intuitive here with airway, breathing, and circulation intervention within the first five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and 20 minutes. Um, So we'll start with like the first five minutes, the things that you want to do immediately to prevent a a deteriorating crashing patient from crashing further. Managing an airway by either inserting a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal airway may help you get respirations under control. In the, the case that we just saw, somebody breathing with a rate of 40 who's altered maybe a oropharyngeal area pharyngeal airway is not for them, but perhaps a nasal pharyngeal airway would have helped relieve if they have any airway obstruction causing them to breathe so rapid and shallow. So I think we ought to take that and and remember that there are certain, and we're going to try and highlight things that should make you worried, right? So someone who on your initial assessment has rapid, shallow breathing, that is one of the most predictive physical findings of someone who's going to go into respiratory arrest, right? So that should be a bit of a red flag. And I think we should highlight some of those red flags as we go along. And breathing problems specifically are the most common dispatch 
uh, impression that lead to a cardiac arrest that's witnessed by EMS. Right, Dr. Ball did some some data mining and can, can educate us on some of the most common and kind of often thought of reasons that patients end up crashing and arresting in front of EMS, as well as maybe a couple of, of surprises. So getting airway and breathing under control is certainly incredibly important. Um, if a patient is in respiratory distress, you may want to sit them up to improve their, their respiratory function. Um, that may not be necessary or available for all patients, depending on their, their specific etiology of respiratory distress, but it can improve a lot of people if, uh, if the patient is not breathing quickly enough, so like less than 10 breaths per minute, we do expect that you start to assist with a BVM even when they're still breathing. You can use two people to get a good seal, and then what you'll want to do is make sure you time bag assist with the patient's own ventilations. On the other side, if the patient is breathing too rapidly, we'd like you to consider using another assistive method like CPAP. Um, Again, not available for everyone depending on mental status, but maybe in this patient with a FIO2 or SPO2 of 30% and a respiratory rate of 40, CPAP may have stabilized their respiratory status and have prevented this, this cardiac arrest. Well, we know in our own local data that older patients are much more likely to be patients that are going to go on and crash or go into respiratory arrest, specifically those with respiratory complaints, like you mentioned the first time. Mm -hmm. What other kind of complaints do people call in with? Certainly. And you know, a a lot of these aren't surprising. Uh, As you pointed out, you you need to really suspect that someone may be starting that uh, downward slide into cardiac arrest, especially with the fast, shallow breathing. Um, I looked at the data uh, for 2022. This is nationwide voluntary data provided by EMS agencies and states. The most common complaint that led to a cardiac arrest that was witnessed by providers at 23.2% was breathing problems followed closely behind by cardiac arrest at 13.4, which isn't totally surprising, but what may or may not be surprising is the variety of complaints that don't sound severe at all that can lead to someone presenting with cardiac arrest. So really the, uh, the, the message is keep your head on a swivel. The first uh, first step to treating cardiac arrest is suspecting and then recognizing it. Uh, more than 4% of the witnessed cardiac arrests were uh, dispatched just for a fall. Uh, about 12% either no other appropriate choice or sick person in general. You know, obviously it's very difficult to get specific information from bystanders sometimes. And I'm I'm sure we're all very suspicious uh, for badness when we're dispatched on a sick person. Uh, Nearly 13% were unconscious, fainting or near fainting, uh, and uh, uh, 4% person down uh, versus unknown problem. So definitely the primary ones are what you might expect, any type of respiratory difficulty, chest pain, cardiac arrest, unconscious person, but uh, be thinking about it on that lift assist, fall, sick person, etc. So our, our case here, the initial complaint from uh, the, the call taker was a seizure, which, which hasn't made our list yet, but certainly could come into the same category of like fall or syncope. Mm-hmm. And that's my B, Dr. Brennan. It, it is in there. Uh, convulsion seizure coming at 2.41%. You know, with this patient, I wonder, did they actually have a seizure, maybe aspirate leading to the breathing problems, or was it VTAC, that classic seizure mimic? Great, great point. 
So, you know, I, I think a lot of this hinges on that initial assessment when you walk in the room. Most definitely. It, it is all imperative of trusting and doing that initial assessment very quickly. I, I personally have responded to a crashing patient before, and I'll, I do remember walking in. I, I was seeing the woman. I can't tell you how fast she was breathing, but just looking at her skin and how much effort she was putting into breathing it was just exhausting even looking at her. So I can't imagine how much it was exhausting her. So it was an immediate reaction just to go ahead to put her on CPAP. And it was almost immediately, you can see the skin color perk up and you can see some relief that that gave us extra time then to start an IV, to take the blood pressure and really do everything else. But it is, it's that initial assessment saying, is there an immediate life threat, which there was, she was not breathing adequately. I mean, she was breathing but all of her energy was going into breathing and that was not something that was sustainable for any length of time. And that's why we need to make quick decisions and, and trust ourselves in our training and take interventions based on what we are seeing from that initial impression. Right. Like Dr. Brennan was saying that first, that first five minutes, right? That's really critical and there's opportunities to, to intervene. And then we need to keep going and do a very good assessment on the patient. Yeah, I mean, the, the next thing that we have to think about is circulation. You know, we've dealt with the airway, we've dealt with breathing, we're, we're assessing circulation. You know, a, a, as we've said, you know, the pads need to be on the patient, you need to be checking their cardiac rhythm. And if it is a, a rhythm that we can intervene upon, we can um, provide, uh, you know, defibrillation or cardioversion as necessary. Pacing. And, and or pacing them, yeah, if they're, in this case, was bradycardic. And, and part of the monitoring that we need to keep in mind is waveform capnography, which is a, um, an excellent tool that we have to assess uh, uh, perfusion uh, in, in these patients. Um, and making sure with circulation that if, you're, if we're able to, we can get IV access on the patient. And if hypotensive, we can start uh, resuscitating the patient with normal saline or lactated ringers. And if we need to, even after that, we can start thinking about push dose pressors with um, epinephrine. Right. Great point. So we need to think about the tools that we have and the assessments that we can do. Right. So let's get that free information that we have. Let's make sure we get the patient on the monitor. Let's make sure we're ready to intervene. You can use those that waveform capnography when you're bagging. You can if you're um, if your unit stocks it, you can use it on spontaneously breathing patients. But it is a very useful tool. Make sure you've got a pulse ox. Look at the waveform. Check the blood sugar. Do all the other simple things that we can do in that process and keep repeating, right? Keep reassessing that patient because that's really one of the things that's going to tell you that the patient's going down the tubes. And, you know, I think we've all seen patients, maybe they got moved prematurely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, you know, we spend those first 10, 15 minutes doing assessments and initial stabilization. And, and then we need to spend some time doing a reassessment before we think about that high flow diesel to the emergency department. The patient may need some other interventions. And at 15 minutes, we're expecting a reevaluation of response to treatment. How is that patient looking on the high flow um, oxygen that you have in place? Or the CPAP, is their mental status improving? Or maybe they're worsening and you need to consider bag valve mask assist or uh, endotracheal intubation or uh, placing some sort of other supraglottic airway if the patient isn't able to tolerate the oxygen that you're using. We've 
talked and seen a number of times in PSRO cases and in our emergency departments of patients who were in extremis, were crashing, and instead of stopping to intervene and do the things that we've been trained as EMS providers to do, the decision was made to take the patient to the emergency department. And in that time frame of walking the patient to the cot, of carrying the patient down the stairs, they ended up getting worse. And then by the time you get to the truck or to the emergency department, they've already gone into cardiac arrest. Maybe we've missed that initial arrest and we're not able to intervene quickly and the patient doesn't have a great outcome. So critical are those first minutes of assessment, the intervention, and then starting to reassess before we start to move. Matt, now, you know, this this isn't something that, that we just made up, right? These are from lessons learned, not just pre-hospital, but even patients that have gotten missed in the emergency department, mm-hmm. right? Patients yeah. that have deteriorated. And, you know, there are some parts of the country that have been using some of these protocols for a while. So, you know, the state of Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh in particular has published a bunch of different um posters and articles on this topic and has showed that you can decrease the chance of having an in-transit cardiac arrest by as much as 80% by paying attention to all of these things. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, we're talking about these patients because they're on the verge of arresting and you, you want that to happen in a, uh, in a, a stable position where you have the whole team able to do whatever is possible to prevent that from happening. And much like a cardiac arrest, that's a classic stay in place situation as tempting as it may be to give them that high-dose high uh, diesel infusion, as Dr. Brennan said. All right, so, you know, what can we learn from the case, and how can we, uh, could have improved the care provided? So in this particular case, we had a patient who has a history of epilepsy and had a seizure, and uh, the EMS uh, clinicians came to fi- uh, see the patient having rapid, shallow breathing. So I think in this instance, uh, placing a non-rebreather, although is a, you know, is something better than nothing, um, probably CPAP would have been a better choice in this case, because you really need to also think about ventilating the patient, not just uh, oxygenating the patient. So maybe CPAP or BVM, should they not be tolerating CPAP? And then the other thing that we need to think about in this case is really they need to be on the monitor we need to uh, have the pads on them we need to have the end title or the waveform capnography going capnography uh, to uh, assess any sort of airway obstruction um, or impending uh, circulatory uh, collapse because in this case had the pads been on we would have been able to recognize uh, bradycardia and would have been able to intervene and, you know, hopefully prevent uh, the cardiac arrest. Right. So that, you know, often they put a patient just on the monitor. So then great. You can see that they're, you know, the patient went into VTAC or VFib or, or bradycardia, but if you don't have the pads on ready to go, you can't intervene in that. And there might only be 30 seconds where that intervention is going to be beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, so if I could maybe summarize some bullet points from this, you know, as with all other disease processes, the first step to treating is recognizing. So maintain a high level of suspicion that a patient is maybe about to crash, especially when you get those classic complaints, the chest pain, difficulty breathing, unconscious person, but also keep your head on a swivel basically at at all times. Sometimes it's very underwhelming uh, presentations that can lead to someone arresting right in front of you. 
Um, other bullet point, this is the time to do a very thorough, good assessment and evaluation. Uh, and that includes, and this is for these sick patients, this is kitchen sink time, both your, uh, your exam, uh, but also getting them on the monitor, getting the pads on as needed, uh, end tidal CO2, cycling that blood pressure, right? Uh, every few minutes and reassessing frequently. Stick to the basics, airway, breathing, circulation first, and then the, the other things follow. Uh, this is a stay-in-play type situation. Uh, you want to stabilize them in a stable setting, not the back of an ambulance dodging Michigan potholes, and reassess, 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 treat as needed with, uh, this is where your advanced uh, interventions, push dose pressors, fluids, CPAP, et cetera, might make a huge difference. Dr. Ball had some great suggestions. Possibly one of the other best things you can do for the crashing patient is to get your, your mental mindset to overcome like the resistance to recognizing that maybe this patient is crashing and understand as soon as you walk into any of these situations that if you just expect that when the patient Brady's down, when the patient goes into respiratory arrest, and when the patient goes into cardiac arrest, I'll do X, Y, and Z rather than if. And if you ever get stuck, we are there to help. You can always reach out to Med Control for uh, suggestions. There are you know, pieces of your protocol that are post-radio that we can help with as well. The other thing that needs to happen once you're ready to transport to the hospital, the hospital needs to be ready for this crashing patient coming in. So we need to make sure that the information you're relaying to the hospital really paints a good picture of how critical this patient was, at least when you first arrived on scene. They may look beautiful by the time they arrive in the emergency department, and there's nothing more that I love than a patient who's been in extremis. And EMS says, I did all these things, and now they look great, and I'm not even sure if they need to be in resuscitation when they get to the ER. But we need to know very clearly of all the vital sign abnormalities and the overall gestalt of what you walked into when you call into the hospital and talk to the communication center and exactly what was done and how you've reassessed the patient and how your interventions have made a difference. So um, make sure that you follow the protocol that we're implementing in DEMCA. Make sure you assess and reassess intervene. That's what you're there to do. And then when you're ready to transport, make sure you give a great report to the hospital outlining all the things you've done so that we're ready to hand off and take the next step in caring for the crashing patient. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Brennan and engineered by Rob Dunn. Music is original by Dr. Matt Ball. We are recorded at Macrobiotic Music and would like to thank Demka Executive Director, Mr. Damon Gorlick. Mm-hmm.